Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. Now, if you're uh, involved with baseball, you're probably very familiar with a guy by the name of Yogi Berra. Yeah, how many of you have heard of this guy? Okay, you're, you're familiar with him. Uh, if you're, you're, you played baseball or you follow baseball, you know the guy played most of his 19 years with the Yankees. Uh, the guy has he's very successful uh, as a coach, manager, or player. He appeared in 21 World Series. But most people, you know, they're familiar with, yeah, he was a great baseball player, catcher, outfielder. I think he was in the Hall of Fame, 72. But most people know of Yogi Berra because of his, his just pithy little quips that he's got, right? Now, this might surprise you, but Yogi Berra dropped out of school in eighth grade. All right, that's it. He said, pretty much I taught you everything I know. I think I'll leave from here. He had these little quips. Like, you probably know him. Like, for instance, it ain't over till it's what? You know who came up with that? Baseball player did, yeah. He had another one like, you know, uh, for instance, one time he said, I really didn't say everything I said. You know, and these are sort of things you're like, what are you, what are you talking about? Another one that he said was, when you see a fork in the road, take it. Okay? Now that seems pretty obvious, and, you know, for some people that just kind of sends them in this kind of mental spiral where they're literally paralyzed. Like, what does that mean? Because, you know, we, we face decisions all the time, right? I mean, you're making decisions. You made a decision like, do I get out of bed today and go to church or, you know, it's kind of raining or at least it rained last night and I'm, in, I'm from Texas and so maybe I, I could stay home and justify it that way. You know, you made a decision, no, I'm, I'm going to be here, right? And you make daily decisions everywhere. Do you, want, do you want fries with your burgers? Which shirt should I wear? I mean, you're always making decisions. Should I watch the preseason football game? And despite what your wife is telling you, no, you don't need to watch them, okay, really. But then there's some decisions are far more important when you come to these fork in the roads. Like, for instance, should I marry this individual? That's going to have huge implications on your life. Should I go to this school? Um, what, what should I do with this particular job option? Should I, should I take it or not? But there is one question. There is one fork in the road that has actually eternal implications both presently and for the life to come, and that is simply this. What will you do with Jesus and the word of the cross? You see, when you come to see Jesus for who he really is, you can't just stall in neutral. You have to, you have to respond. And how you respond has eternal implications, because our lives for eternity are determined by what we do with Jesus Christ and the word of the cross. And I'd like to show you from Matthew chapter 26, one of the pivotal chapters in the gospel. I mean, it just kind of drives home the essential reality of how important it is to respond rightly to Jesus Christ. Let me give you the setting here, the setting before Christ's suffering in Matthew chapter 26, verse one. It says, when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples for 25 chapters, Matthew has recorded this window a window of words so that we see Jesus Christ, his deity, the greatness of God, how to truly live. And when Jesus had finished these words, he came to that specific time for why he came to this earth. And he said to his disciples, verse two, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man is to be handed over for crucifixion. So just to bring you up to speed, Jesus has made his final trek to Jerusalem. We are just literally two days away from Passover, 
This is that great feast that the, the Jews every single year celebrated on the first, uh, first, in their first month. They celebrated the fact that God had actually rescued them by having them sacrifice a Passover lamb and taking that blood and putting it on the doorpost and the lintel of their doors. And if they should do so, the angel of death, when he passed over, would not take their firstborn son. However, if you didn't have that blood applied to your doorpost and your lintel, your son would die. And the Jews celebrated Passover not only because God had rescued Israel out of Egyptian bondage, but he had actually spared their son through this giving of this sacrificial lamb. A lamb that pictured the once and for all lamb, the sacrificial lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. And so Jesus is saying, after two days, the Passover, it is coming. And then he he directly ties. Now, this is the fourth time that Jesus actually speaks of his upcoming crucifixion and his upcoming death. And he ties the Passover to what is about to take place. And he says, and the son of man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Now, we hear the word crucifixion. We're so familiar with the cross crucifixion that, you know what? No one hardly even stirred. I didn't see anybody flinch. Anybody go, whoa. Let me assure you. When, they, when Jesus spoke of the crucifixion and he tied himself to it, this would cause the disciples just to reel back and aghast because crucifixion was the very worst form of execution. It was utter torture perfected by the Romans and they would use it for the worst of criminals. And Jesus, he keeps saying that he's going to die this way. And for his, for his disciples, this was like this looming intrusion. This horrible event that Jesus keeps tying himself to. They don't want this. They, like many people, want a Messiah to come to overthrow Rome and for this promised one to take the throne of David and to reign and rule and return Israel to its glory days. And many people, just even a few days prior to this, when Jesus makes his entry into Jerusalem, it's called the triumphal entry because they're calling out, Hosanna, son of David. They're expecting that this could be the time for this is the man. But Jesus isn't talking about military overthrow. He keeps talking about his death and not just any old death. It's, it's a death of, of crucifixion. And some people think, you know, uh, these disciples, I, I just hope this would go away. And there's people like that today. They don't they don't really want to deal with the cross. They, they want to see what Jesus can do for them. They like to see that Jesus is sort of like a good example, that if we follow in the ways of Jesus, we'll have a positive influence on people as well. There was a book in 1983 called Joshua, and it actually went on to become a national bestseller. Joshua, i.e. Jesus, he appears in this particular town and he just does all these good things. And he kind of just changes the whole aura of the town by just him continually doing all these nice things. And it was a book that was meant to inspire people to live generously and graciously like Jesus. And there's just one problem with that, though. Jesus doesn't change us by his example. He changes us and transforms us through his death. That's why he came. And his disciples, they didn't want to deal with the cross. That didn't fit in with their game plan. And yet, that is for the very, this is for the very purpose why Jesus came. He emptied himself. Jesus Christ, God the Son, has existed from all eternity. He empties himself by addition, by actually adding on humanity upon himself. He set 
aside, sets aside temporarily the exercise of his divine attributes. He becomes a man, so he's fully man, fully God, and he comes specifically for this purpose to pay the penalty of sin for his people. And what is the wages of sin? Is death. And someone must die to pay this penalty, and it must be a perfect one. And so Jesus comes to offer himself. And this is why he's come, to be our Passover lamb. Just like John said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, Jerusalem at Passover was thriving. It was five times its normal size. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes that there were about two and a half to three million people that now come to Jerusalem. They're going to sacrifice 250,000 lambs at Passover. All of them a picture of this one coming lamb. And Jesus says, that's me. The crucifixion's happening, and he ties it to Passover. Now, when Jesus is making this declaration, there's some other discussions that are going on as well. Look at this, verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. But they were saying not during the festival. Otherwise, a riot might occur among the people. There are some others that are meeting. And that is the leadership of, Jew, of, of the Jewish people, the Sanhedrin. And there's a man specifically listed, Caiaphas. He is the high priest. And these different priests, these different leaders, they have gathered at his home. And they're conspiring to how they might go about to murder Jesus. And they've got a plan. They want to do it. Notice they're plotting, verse 4, to seize Jesus by stealth, secretly, furtively. And they want to kill him. But they specifically don't want to kill him at a particular time. Do you see that in verse 5? But they were saying, not during the festival. Not during this Passover festival when you got all the, like, two and a half to three million people here. Not then, because that's when a riot potentially could occur. We're going to do it at another time. We are afraid of the people, so... We just need to get Jesus, get him out of the way, get him out of the picture when everybody has to go back to their little farms and all their little communities because people come from all over the Mediterranean basin, all over the Roman Empire for this event. Then we're going to take care of him. Now, this isn't the first time they wanted to kill Jesus. In fact, it's interesting. The Gospel of Matthew actually begins with the very first attempt on his life. Remember, it was Herod and Herod found out that this so-called Messiah had been born in Bethlehem. And so what do you do? If you're a king and you don't want anybody encroaching on your territory, you got to what? You got to kill this little baby. And so he said, anybody from two on under, we'll make sure we got him. All those infants, they're dead. And yet God rescued his son by informing through an angel to Joseph saying, take your son and take him now to Egypt. And he spared the sword. There's another time where Jesus begins his ministry. Luke records this. He's up. And he, he's in Nazareth and he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue. And he says from this messianic text, he says, this speaks of me. What Isaiah wrote about the coming Messiah, about God, the son, that's me. When they heard that, they came unglued. They're like, no way. A prophet can't be honored in his own town. And so you know what they did? They took him to the brow of this cliff. They were going to try to kill him. And yet it wasn't his time. And Jesus somehow supernaturally just eludes these people and moves on. There was another event that actually took place in Jerusalem where there was a man by the, at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath that was healed by Jesus. And it infuriated the Jews. 
In fact, they made this statement, John chapter 5, verse 18. For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was doing this. He was calling God his own father, therefore making himself equal with God. The Jews understood the claims that Jesus was making. He wasn't claiming to be less than God. He wasn't claiming to be a just another prophet. He claimed specifically to be God himself, equal with God. I know there's confusion with people today and want people wanting to make Jesus less than God, but that was never the issue. And you cannot read the New Testament without coming to the conclusion the Jews knew what he was talking about. And the Jewish leadership said, we don't want you as our Messiah. And that is why they're plotting to kill him. And they want to get rid of him. Specifically, there's a man by the name of Caiaphas. You see that in verse three? He is the high priest. Let me give you a little bit of background on him. Caiaphas was somewhat of a political wonder. He had managed to maintain the high priesthood for 18 years. He actually married the daughter of the former high priest, a guy by the name of Annas. And so the father-in-law and Caiaphas, they kind of had like a dual priesthood. Now, we know from the Old Testament that the priesthood was to last. If you were the high priest, you lasted for your entire life. But when the Romans took over, they said, you know, we don't really like this. You're a conquered people. We'll let you kind of have your little religion, but we're going to make some tweaks to it. For instance, this whole high priest deal, way too much power in one spot. We will change this at our will whenever we want. And they did. Within the, for the first hundred years of Roman occupation of Israel, they had changed it 28 times. For Caiaphas to stay in power for 18 years was amazing. Because the next guy that took the priesthood after Caiaphas, a guy by the name of Vitellus, you know how long he lasted with the Romans? 50 days. And I said, this ain't working. You're done. When you when they this priesthood, there's great amount of historical information that seems to suggest that the Jews actually purchased this from the Romans, Romans, meaning a guy like Caiaphas paid a high price or he was given this gift by Rome so he could occupy this power. Because if you were the high priest, it had changed from being one who leads the people to God to now the high priesthood was really a huge money making venture. In fact, it was the high priest. And his and the guys around him, they're the ones that ran all the temple festivities and festivities. Now, these weren't really so much directing attention to God. They had turned this into a huge money marketing scheme. All the lambs that were sacrificed, you had to buy them from who? The high priest and his associates. You had to even change out your money through his guys. These guys were making a mint. And so when Jesus shows up at the beginning of his ministry, And just actually a few days when he actually made his entry into Jerusalem, remember the next day after that entry, he went and started flipping over all their tables. And he said, you have made my father's house a den of robbers. And yet it is supposed to be a house of prayer. Well, he was making a huge statement about who he is. And also about what worship really is about. Let me tell you, someone who really didn't like what he saw or heard Caiaphas. Because this was a direct affront. Every single time Caiaphas is referenced in the New Testament, Caiaphas is trying to kill Jesus. It was deeply personal. It was malevolent. It was deep in his heart. He wanted to get rid of this man at any cost. He would not be the Messiah. and He would do everything he could to see that he was killed. And so they had this plan. They were going to seize him, but not during the festival. Do you see that in verse 5? But let me just tell you, our God is greater. We just sung about it, but you need to know about it. He is absolutely sovereign. It looks like right now that the schemes of man are going to have their way. 
But let me assure you, God is working out his purpose and his will according to his timetable. And they are saying literally in the Greek, it's in the imperfect tense. Verse five, when that word saying he's they're always saying this, let's make sure, though, it doesn't happen during the Passover. Right. Right. Not during the Passover. And yet, when is Christ going to be crucified? When will he die? On God's timetable. On the Passover. You see, the Jews were the last thing they wanted was someone to claim that he was Messiah because the Romans. They had now developed a little pattern. Anybody even claiming to be a Messiah or anybody stirring up any sort of riot, the Romans came down very hard. When Herod the Great died, that very next Passover, there was a riot that occurred. And Archelaus, his son, you know how he responded with it? He sent in his cavalry and his troops, and they killed 3,000 Jews at that Passover. And just recently, Pilate had also killed some more people that are trying to even attempt a little bit of riot. And so the Sanhedrin and the chief priests, they're going to try to keep peace among the people because that allows them to stay in power. And you got a guy like Jesus who he seems to have this groundswell of support. You got to you got to put an end to him, but you got to do it in such a way that you don't cause a riot. And so when you see these events starting to play, take place, what you realize is that the fulcrum of history is the cross of Christ. And God demonstrates his sovereign control of history. And he does so through the working of the cross. It's like the cross. It actually frees men from death and from their own sin. It is the apex of history. This is what Jesus is speaking about. Now, this gospel, this word of the cross, let me tell you, it, it elicits two opposing responses in people. To those who believe... To those who really believe Jesus and the word of the cross, it leads to a devotion that brings about worship. Look at verse six. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Now, we don't know hardly anything about Simon the leper other than he most likely had been cured of his leprosy by Jesus. If you were a leper, you remember, you couldn't touch anybody. You couldn't be around anybody. You certainly couldn't be at a home. You couldn't be in a village. And it looks as if there seems to be a Thanksgiving feast taking place at the home of Simon the leper, now cleansed by Jesus. And he is Jesus is gathered. His disciples are gathered. This event is recorded in Mark and John. Uh, Matthew, by the way, is not writing chronologically so much in some of these events. This event, John actually Mark, excuse me, tells us that it actually occurs uh, on the Saturday right before he makes his triumphal entry. But Matthew is writing to show you themes and to elicit to us a response. And so he's recording this event. Jesus is here. Simon the leper, Mary and Martha are there. They're apparently serving the meal. They lived in Bethany. Bethany is just outside of Jerusalem. At the Passover, we got all five, we got five times the number of people. They went all throughout Jerusalem, but all the surrounding villages, which would include Bethany and Bethphage, these people would go and they'd stay in homes because, I mean, you got to stay someplace. And so in Bethany, it's very possible that Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Simon, this cleansed leper, they were good friends. Obviously, they were there. And this woman is actually identified. She is identified, not in this text, but Mark actually and John actually identify her as Mary. And she came to them with this alabaster vial of very 
costly perfume. Alabaster is this like fine marble. It's translucent. It can be shaped into flasks. And so it was extremely valuable, just the flask itself. But then they would fill this with this pure spikenard. It was it was extremely expensive. It likely came from India. And we actually know that it was uh, extremely expensive. It was listed as being about the worth of 300 denarii. OK, now 300 denarii is a denarii is a day's wage. And so it's estimated that this cost about twelve thousand dollars, this this perfume and this vial. So if you're thinking of perfume and you're thinking like, oh, I know all about perfume. <laughs> Got it from my wife. They had a little special at Walmart, you know, and for six ninety nine. Sweet, man, I came through, you know, I just took that little sticker off there. It was it was good, you know, smelled decent. Right. That's this is not it. This this makes like Chanel number five look like the Walmart special. OK, this was extremely costly. It had to have been extremely valuable. You didn't you didn't use perfume like this. Now, let me let me just bring you back to a little bit of history here. They they would anoint people's heads at Jewish feasts with oil. OK, they did it as a sign of respect. Uh, they did it also because there was a certain amount of odor that would come with this anointing that would counteract the odor that came with people's bodies. At Jesus' time, I, I know, I know you're just imagining this, but there was no right guard or no secret or no old spice deodorant with sports scent. There was none of that stuff, okay? And so when you've got large numbers of people all gathering and you want to have a good time at the feast, you're going to have to do something, right? And so they would anoint these people with oil, and at least that kind of counteract the smell, and so sweat, but also, oh, the oil, and you know, and so and it, it smelled good. But this perfume was likely a family heirloom. You would only use it at the most special of occasions. Even then, it would just be like a little touch, right? And you would also possibly use it just at a funeral. And let me remind you that Lazarus, Mary's brother, had died, and she obviously didn't use it then. It was something extremely valuable. But it was in this occasion that she comes with this alabaster vial of very costly perfume. And she actually pours it out on his head as he reclined at the table. She, she does this tremendous act of worship. It is very reminiscent of that prostitute who had been forgiven. Remember that scene where she does the exact same thing? She pours out perfume on Jesus and it's off his head and it just kind of flows and she starts wiping his feet with her hair. And she does this because she is expressing a total act of devotion and worship to Jesus. Now, this would have been completely startling. I mean, everybody's gathered. They're gathered probably to celebrate Jesus. They love him. Simon the leper is hosting the dinner. He brought the best cooks in town. Mary and Martha, they're right there. The disciples, the best eaters in all of Israel, they're there. It's a huge feast. But this woman, when she does this and they see this, all of a sudden they become extremely quiet. And you're watching like $12,000 being poured out over Jesus. The smell would have been staggering. She's like, whoa, it would have just been overpowering and overwhelming. The scene itself would have just elicited like, oh, whoa, wait, what, 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 what is going on here? And here you see Mary and she's just pouring out her heart, her love, her life for Jesus, who would do far more the same for her. In just a couple days at Passover. Well, 
The disciples, they're all watching this, trying to take this all in, reconcile what's going on here. Look at this. You think they're going to like, whoa, respond with favoritism and worship. But look at verse 8. The disciples were indignant. You see that? When they saw this, they said, why the waste? They're indignant. What in the world, Jesus, are you doing? From another gospel account, we know that Judas is the spokesperson. He's the one that steps up and go, what, what in the world, woman, are you doing? What, don't you know? Don't you know and that this could be sold? We could use it and give money to the poor. I mean, we're supposed to do that at Passover. We're always trying to take care of the poor. Didn't you listen to Jesus when he was talking about taking care of the poor and giving people a cup of water and that God the Father notices these things? Didn't you remember that? That was just a few verses away. Didn't you see that? Who are you? Aren't you thinking clearly? And Jesus is watching this. The smell of that perfume just permeates this house. Judas, and notice it says the disciples. It's not just Judas. It's all of them. And they're indignant. That's pretty interesting. Judas has got, he's like the treasurer for the disciples. Judas had a high degree of trust among the disciples. He, in fact, he also had their respect. They, they appreciated this man. He was forward thinking. He was smart. He was astute. And Jesus, Jesus must obviously have noticed that because he put him in charge of the money box, right? Their funds all went through Judas. He was the man. He was the CFO of their operation. However, Judas himself would actually pilfer money and take it and steal it. John actually writes this. This is he actually absconded from funds used for the forwarding of the ministry for his own personal pleasure that had nothing to do with Jesus. And so Judas is a spokesperson, but even the disciples don't get it. They are indignant. They are upset. They're inflamed with this Mary. And they're saying, why the waste? Could have given this perfume, sold it to the poor. What are you doing? But look at verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. She has done something beautiful to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus isn't disparaging the poor. He loves the poor. We're commanded by him to care for the poor. But he's saying something greater than the poor is here. What he's doing, he's making a claim to deity. He's saying, verse 12, for when she poured out this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Once again, his disciples don't get it. And Jesus steps in and says, what this woman does and she's doing, she's preparing me for my burial. I just got done telling you about my upcoming crucifixion. And it's possible, very possible, the amount of perfume and that being so strong that it would still be emanating from Jesus' body and his skin when indeed he's buried six days from now. Jesus points out, listen, this woman knows me and knows what I'm going to do. Now, there's some people who go, there's no way that Mary would have known that. She probably just wanted to express her devotion. But I'll tell you, Jesus didn't have a better listener than Mary. When Jesus was talking, Mary was sitting at his feet paying attention. And Mary was oftentimes misunderstood. 
She was misunderstood when she was sitting at the feet of Jesus listening. She was misunderstood at the death of his brother when she went and fell at the feet of Jesus and pleaded with him, told him what was going on. And she is misunderstood here. Let me tell you, your acts of worship and devotion, they may be misunderstood. They certainly are by the world. They're going, what? You're a fool. You giving like this, sacrificing, investing your time. Come on, there's so many other things you could be doing through your life. But not only from the world, but from other believers. To think you're going a little too radical with this whole Jesus deal. You're, come on, we need to tame down your worship and get it into little manageable bite sizes that fits in with good old Americana. However, Jesus says, this woman is doing something that is beautiful to me. You see, to those who believe, it leads to a, to a devotion to worship. You see, the disciples, the disciples that understand the word of the cross, you know what? They ask, how much can I give? You see, when you understand Jesus, that he is actually poured out his life for you, his perfect life and his righteousness is transferred to your account because you believe when you see his sacrifice, you see his love and you see his perfection. It elicits from those who believe the gospel a response of worship. And you and I are designed for this, for the worship of God through the believing of the gospel. That is why we keep coming back and thinking of Jesus and his cross. And what he has done in our behalf, because it elicits in us worship, a response. And so when you make a significant gift of finances or your time, you know, you do so because you've made a significant investment of prayer and thinking. This isn't just like spur of the moment. Oh, man, what can I do? Oh, no, I'll just run and grab the family heirloom that maybe he's been in the family for several generations. And I think I'll just pour it over Jesus. That's not a good idea. No. This was something that she had treasured and planned to do as an act of great devotion. It's not fleeting emotions. It's settled convictions. Yesterday, I was uh, visiting a few of our folks that are in the hospital that can't be with us this morning. And uh, in one case, I was able to read the text, talk a little about it. And one of our folks said this, I want to be like that woman. This individual said it with great emotion. If you want to be like this woman, you have to think like this woman. You have to see Jesus and cherish him, treasure him. Mary gives extravagant love because she sees the greatness of the love of Jesus for her. That's worship. You don't just walk in and say, oh, we've got to sing some songs. We come and gather and worship him because of the greatness of Jesus and we're thinking deeply upon him. And when you think about gifts, gifts of your time, some of you give great amounts of your time. Gifts of finances, a fellowship, no one knows what anybody gives, but God does. And your great gifts and your generosity and your sacrificial, cheerful giving, guess what? You know what? That comes from a heart of worship. Don't begin, by the way, of thinking about your gift. Like, ah. What can I do? Let me think. What kind of gift can I give? No, think about the gift that God has given you in Jesus. Mull it over in your mind. Let it resonate with your heart. And then the idea of a costly perfume will come to your mind. And then you'll know exactly what I am to offer. If you want to experience a life like Mary of utter devotion and freedom and joy of worship, well, it begins by just saying, God, all of who I am, I give to all 
that you are. Try it. This week, each day, just pray that simple prayer and see if the orientation of your life is not changed by the word of the cross. However, the gospel and the word of the cross, it yields a completely different response to those who reject. To those who reject, it leads to a downward spiral that leads to destruction. At the same time, we have Jesus gathered with his friends at a celebration of his goodness, his grace, of Mary pouring out her heart and her life and worship. And, and she does so symbolically through giving this extremely extravagant gift of pouring out this very costly perfume. There are others that are gathered and you find them in verse 14. Then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. From then on, he, speaking of Judas, began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Let me tell you what's going on here. Judas has taken this all in. He just got rebuked by Jesus. Remember, he was going to step up and say, hey, Mary, what in the world are you doing? You could have given this money to the poor. Jesus steps in, defends her and says, what she's done is beautiful. She's preparing me for my upcoming death, which I just told you I am about ready to die. I am the Passover lamb. You know, that was the straw that broke the camel's back for Judas. You see, you know, Judas has hung on for about two to three years. He's been traveling with Jesus. He was the key guy. He had all the money, right? But you see, Judas seemed to be into Jesus for what he could get out of him. Judas was driven by greed, by selfishness, by a lust for power. And he really thought that Jesus could deliver. I mean, think about it. If you are the CFO of Jesus' group when he's 12, what happens when he steps onto that throne? What happens when he somehow just overwhelms Rome and they decide that they're going to move out of Israel? Man, you're going to have one of the top spots. You're going to be one of the key guys, right? But Jesus keeps talking about his death and his crucifixion. That totally didn't work in Judas's picture. And now he's talking about, hey, money spent on me is a good idea. It's a good deed. That was it for Judas. I'm out of here. You know, he's kind of thinking, Jesus has gone way too far. Now's my time. I need to at least recruit something that is being lost here. And so at the same time, one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot He goes to the chief priest. It's very likely the chief priest still meeting at Caiaphas' house. Can you imagine when one of Jesus' key men makes entrance to the gate? First reporting the guard. There's a a guy. One of of Jesus' key guys is here. One of his 12 is here. The word gets back to Caiaphas. Um, Come on in. We've been waiting for a moment like this. Can't you even hear it saying underneath their breath? God is good. Look at that. (laughs) <laughs> it's all coming together. Our schemes, our plans. Jesus has outwitted us and made us look like fools for a long time now. But now it's all coming together. Here is one of Jesus' key men. He's starting to see the light. And Judas says, I'm ready. What will you give me? You see this? What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? Jesus is pretty tough yet. You guys have been pretty unsuccessful, but I do have a means of getting him. You want him in secret? I know where he'll be in secret. What are you willing to give me? And you see that? They weighed out 30 pieces 
of silver. <laughs> 30 pieces of silver. You know how much that was? That'd be about the equivalent of about $5,000. 30 pieces of silver, by the way, just by the way, that was the price that was given for a slave that was killed when an ox gored him. So if you had an ox and it gored somebody's slave, killed him, 40 pieces of silver. And so Judas hands Jesus over for the cost of a dead slave. 30 pieces of silver. You see, from here on, Judas is going to look for the golden opportunity to betray Jesus. When no one's watching, where it can be done in quiet and in secret. But Judas is a tragic example of a wasted opportunity. If anybody had the opportunity to see Jesus for who he is, his greatness, his miracles, his power, his love, his wisdom, it was Judas. But for Judas, he wanted Jesus on his terms. What can Jesus do for me? Not, how is it that I can give my life for him who pours out his life for me? Let me tell you. Judas serves as a very strong warning to all those who pretend to serve Christ, whose hearts are far from God. You can be a part of a church. You can hang out with Christians. You can know the lingo. You can have a Bible and still not know Christ. Let me just give you this equation if you're into math. Immense privilege plus a hardened heart equals tragic results. You see, the person who does not understand the cross asks, How much can I get? And that is kind of how Jesus is presented today, especially in America. What Jesus can do for you, right? After all, it's all about you. We have an egocentric, self-centered mindset of how we approach life and even our spirituality. And so what is it that Jesus could offer me? People go for churches like, hey, what does this church have to offer me? What does Jesus have to offer me? We are so self-centered. And that's exactly how Judas was. If you find this alarming, it is meant to do just that. To bring you to this census. That the word of the cross is like a fork in the road. And you're going to go one way or the other. If you really think it's all about you, you're in for tragic results. On the other hand, if you realize it's all about Jesus, you're in for joy, unending worship. You see, Jesus, for Judas, he's not interested in dying to himself or living for Christ. You know why? It would call him to sacrifice his personal agenda. So what about you? Will you sacrifice your personal agenda to truly embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Or are you going to try to meld the two on your timetable, at your convenience, at your discretion? It cannot be done. If you want an example of what it looks like, his name is Judas Iscariot. Let me tell you, it is being renewed by the sovereignty of God that we find confidence in Christ. Who is demonstrating that he's in control? The Jewish people think like, the leaders think like it's all coming together, just like we planned. But let me tell you who's overriding all of this. It is God himself. And he said, my son will die for sinners like me, like you, for them. And he'll do it at my time, exactly when the Passover lambs are are being killed. So my son will die on your behalf. You know what we need is we need renewal. We're so familiar with this that it hardly alarms us. It it hardly alerts us. And what happens is we develop somewhat of a complacency in our spiritual life. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. There's a statue 
It's this bronze submerged statue of Jesus. You can find it in the Italian Riviera. They, they dropped it in there in 1954. It's pretty large, about eight feet tall. And it's, and it's, got, it's a statue of Jesus. And he's got his arms raised. It's called the Christ of the Abyss. Okay, it's very heavy. It's very big. For scuba divers, it is considered a must-see. Well, they put it in in 1954, but what happened? They got all, all these crustaceans, and the bronze started rusting, and somebody dropped an anchor and knocked off one of Jesus' hands, and, and so it needed repair. And so 2003, they pull this up, and this is a huge deal. They pull this up, they restored the hand, they cleaned it all off, and they, and they replaced it back in there. Deep-sea divers go, and they see it. It's considered one of the must-see events. But I want you to think about this for a minute. Maybe, maybe now is the time as we begin in this fall, this new school year. At the end of the summer, we begin freshness with Jesus. Let us go and see Jesus in the depths of our heart. If, there's, if we develop patterns of going through life with hardly ever praying, we don't intake his word. We never think about worship and devotion. We've become rather rote and ritualistic. We become complacent and we do not confess sin. Now is the time to knock all those barnacles off of the fellowship and experience the sweetness of the Lord. That's why this passage is here. It's a fork in the road and it's a beckoning. Be like Mary. See Jesus for who he is and respond. You see, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Did you want to experience God's power in your life? Found by focusing on the word of the cross. To the world, that's foolishness, but they're perishing. But to us who are being saved, that's the power of God. And our lives for eternity are determined by what we do with the word of the cross. So we simply say, Lord, all that I am, I give to all that you are. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for an amazing passage. Once again, you have captured our hearts. You have enlightened us to understand the divine text, inspired word that Jesus calls us to lives of worship through the gospel, through the word of the cross. So, Lord, make it a reality, we ask. And even in this time of communion, Lord, do a heart work in us. Remove away anything that keeps us from sweet fellowship with Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And the men are preparing for communion, and I'm just going to ask that you just prepare your heart. Let me just tell you about communion here at Fellowship. You do not need to be a member of Fellowship Bible Church. You do, however, have to personally know Christ as your Lord and your Savior. And so what you do, use this time to just worship God. Thank Him. Praise Him. If you have sin in your account, things you've thought of, things you've not done, whatever you've said, just confess it and once again experience the cleansing of Jesus. And just a few minutes then, we'll share, this, share in this together.